us is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's son and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to sword. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore off his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Thank you, Nathan, for reading that for us this morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, church family. I think we need a little volume adjustment here. Thank you, Dan. Well, I'm glad we had the music team go after that children's Christmas pageant that I didn't have to just step up here right away. I needed a little time to compose myself. (laughs) I'm not sure how you can be laughing and crying at the same time. Uh, But boy, those kids did it. Thank you, Aaron, for all that you did. I'm sure Josh is looking forward to having his wife back after uh, countless weeks of uh, preparing those kids for that and having witnessed Joel do that for many years. uh, I know it's kind of like herding cats. And uh, somehow, somehow they did it. Uh, I know what, uh, I know what Ludovic should get underneath the Christmas tree for Christmas this year. Poinsettia. Put that on his Christmas list. So if anybody needs an idea for Ludovic for Christmas, get him a poinsettia. I think uh, that would do it right there. Well, we're continuing the uh, Advent season series here where we discuss the topics just prior to Christmas of love, joy, hope, and peace. And we might be mixing up the order just a little bit this year. I'm going to tackle hope. I've tackled joy not too terribly long ago. And in the aftermath of the fire, tragic fire in paradise, the campfire, I just really, uh, the Lord was really putting it on my heart to want to talk about the topic of hope. And so that is what we're going to look at today. And as I was uh, considering the topic of hope, and I'm going to figure out why this uh, po- clicker, we'll, we'll figure it out here. You know what, maybe I need to hit the power button first here. Oh, that would help. Yeah, so I decided uh, our topic for day, what I named it is uh, our subject line, if you will, is Paradise Lost, Hope Destroyed. And as I got to considering the topic of hope, uh, I was looking at it in, uh, and really when you start thinking about hope, 
you can't help but to start thinking about faith. And it's like, well, are those two interchangeable or not? And so I thought I'd dust off my trusty uh, 1990 Webster Dictionary. And this is how Webster's defines hope and faith, respectively. Hope is a feeling that what is wanted will happen. Desire accompanied by expectation. The object of this is the hope itself. A person or thing on which one may base some hope. And uh, then in contrast, in comparison, faith is unquestioning belief, specifically in God, religion, etc. A particular religion, you refer to a person's faith as a person's uh, religion. Uh, complete trust or confidence. And uh, I thought, well, that's all good and fine. And so I kind of simplified it a little bit. This is Glenn's definitions now for hope and faith. I like to be a little bit concise and keep it simple here, but hope is an expectation, and faith is really where the rubber hits the road (laughs) with regards to hope, if you will. And so that's simplifying things just a little bit. When we take a look at what the Bible has to say, this is perhaps one of the best-known verses from Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And Hebrews 11 is really the, uh, the the hall of faith it is known as. As you go through that chapter, it's just a laundry list of all the people who have gone before us and who have walked by faith. If you have not read that recently, I encourage you to do so. But the very first verse of chapter 11 is, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And when we consider uh, some of the things I hope for, for example, and I'm just going to start, for example, with worldly things. From a worldly perspective, some of the things I hope for is I hope that me and my family would all be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, I hope that all my daughters marry godly men who are pleasing in God's sight. Uh, I hope to have grandkids someday who are followers of Christ. I hope to be a good provider for my family. I hope to have a home where I can comfortably have family gatherings and look forward to hopefully a small army of grandkids. Did I mention grandkids yet? No rush, girls. I'm working in the nursery, so that's kind of tiding me over for now, so that's helping a lot. Uh, Be a good provider for uh, my family. Be a great husband to to my wife. Do a great job for our clients, and on and on and on. So these are some of the things just from an earthly perspective that I hope for. And how about some of our hope, the things that we hope for as Christ followers? What about some of the things that the Bible tells us about that we can look forward to and that we hope for? Well, uh, eternal life, that's a big one. Probably want to put that one up there, right? Some of the things that the Bible promises us and some of the things that we hope for as Christ followers. Uh, How about being reunited with loved ones who have gone on before us in the Lord? Uh, How about no more pain, no more suffering? A new body. I was talking to Jim Ruggiero earlier, just checking in on see how Bonnie's doing. And, and you know, just uh, we're, so many people, unfortunately, are battling such serious battles with pain and suffering. And just, uh, hey, we're promised a new body, a heavenly body, uh, for those of us who are Christ followers and uh, looking forward to heaven. And uh, again, with the fire last month, that was just one month and one day ago on November 8th, Uh, Just that tragic fire in paradise got me to thinking about the topic of hope. Uh, That town was home to 27,000 people. Uh, The town was pretty much destroyed in a single day. I should add that that town was my hometown. Uh, I did eighth grade through high school up there. I'm a graduate of Paradise High School. 
And we'll try to keep it together. It's all the kids' fault for getting me started with this thing, with uh, all the tears earlier that we shed listening to them. Uh, but just some of the statistics about the campfire. There were uh, 153,336 acres burned. I just got all this from the CAL FIRE website the other day. 13,972 residences destroyed. You know, what do we have with the car fryer around 1,100? I think it was, shade over 1,100. Uh, 528 commercial properties destroyed. You know, that's one thing, thankfully, for us here in Reading, you know, our commercial properties were spared. You know, in Paradise, nothing was spared. It's residences, businesses. 4,293 other buildings destroyed. And worst of all, there are 85 fatalities. Uh, went, uh, Wikipedia has an update already on the campfire. Uh, the campfire was the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history. It was also the deadliest wildfire in the United States since 1918, 100 years, and the sixth deadliest ever. It was a tragedy of mind-blowing proportions uh, that you just wouldn't think is possible. Uh, this is an aerial view of that fire on November 8th. That's on the CAL FIRE website. Uh, this picture here, I assume, was taken from Chico. Maybe it's from Orville. But that just incredible cloud of smoke that you see is the town of Paradise. The town of Paradise is now scattered all over the western United States and the world, in essence. This is a lot of us uh, being here in Reading and witnessing the car fire. We know what this map is. This is the structure map that shows you know, the homes that are burned versus the homes that survived. And this is just a small portion of the map, and I know I would have had a little more clarity if I zoomed in a little bit more. But all that red is homes that are destroyed. Uh, the black are houses that survived, and the green ones are homes with 10% or less damage to them. And I remember when I first heard reports coming out, I think it was the mayor of Paradise said, oh, 80% of the town is destroyed or some such thing. Last I heard, it's more like 95%. And I, when I talked to my brother who lived up there, many of you have met my aunt, who is also a Paradise evacuee, who's here today with us. Um, you know, pretty much everybody they know lost their home. You know, it's more like 95 or 99% of that town is a goner. And there's a map that gives you a little bit of a look at what that looks like. Uh, my parents had since moved out of there and live in Durham now, uh, but this is the home that they uh, built and used to live in. They built a home on the Feather River Canyon. It's a beautiful home overlooking the canyon. It's a goner. All that's left are the masonry walls that you see. Uh, this is my brother's office building. was my brother's office building right there on the right. He's an attorney, and that was his law practice there in town. Prior to the fire, you can see how beautiful that community was. And this is his office now. And so with this fire, basically the hopes and dreams of more than 30,000 30, people went up in flames. The hopes and dreams of, again, just a huge community literally went up in flames. And with a tragedy like this, 
with the just complete and utter total devastation, people are likely to question God's sovereignty and God's love. Is God really in control? Somebody might be tempted to ask, and understandably so, when you see something like this happen. Or did he create the heavens and earth and say, I'm done here. I'm out of here. The term that sometimes people use is absentee landlord. I remember when I was a kid, I believed in God. This is prior to coming to Christ. I used to believe in God. I didn't think, I could not believe. I could not, not believe in God. Just, I mean, his, his, his presence is evidence from, evident from what he has made. So I always believed in God, but as a youth, I questioned, did he create heaven and earth and then leave? Just leave it to its own devices? Or with all the pain and suffering in life, how can a loving God exist? Somebody might be prone to ask that question after a tragedy such as this. How can a loving God exist when you see all of this pain and you see all of this suffering and you see all of this loss? Or worse, somebody might say they want no part of a God that would allow these types of things to happen. So, church family, how do you answer someone who is suffering and has these questions running through their head? What do you tell them? We've had a pretty full day here already, so I'm going to give you the short answer. I'll give you the short answer. And I think those questions are somewhat loaded questions. Uh, Whoever said that a loving God and pain and suffering are mutually exclusive? Who says you can't have a loving God and you can't also have pain and suffering? Does the presence of suffering necessarily mean the absence of God? And I'll give you the short answer to that, and that's no, of course not. Read God's word. Does he promise us a pain-free life with no trials? And of course, those of us who have read God's word, we know the answer to, to that is absolutely not. This is uh, probably one of the most common verses that you can turn to. This is from John 16, verse 33, in which uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And when you think about it, what kind of faith would we have if we didn't have trials, that wouldn't take any faith at all. You know, if we had a pain-free life, if we had no trials whatsoever, it no longer becomes faith. It's a faithless faith if such a thing were possible. That would not take any faith at all. And I can give you proof positive that you can have pain and suffering in the world and a sovereign God, totally in control God, and a totally loving God. I give you Jesus Christ. You want to talk about tragedies. What was the greatest tragedy of all? And most of you in this room know this. But the greatest tragedy of all in the history of humanity was the brutal torture and death of Jesus Christ at the hands of sinful man. Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, and God himself, left the throne in heaven came down to earth to walk among man and pay the penalty that we ourselves owe. 
We have forgiveness through God on account of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and paying the penalty that we owe. Talk about the ultimate tragedy. Totally sinless, totally holy, totally God, and he was killed by a man. This is, in one event, we have the ultimate tragedy. We have the ultimate act of love in one event, and it was also completely under the design and will of a sovereign God. So yes, we can have pain, we can have suffering, and we can have a sovereign, loving God. And we've got evidence from 2,000 years ago with Christ coming to earth and paying the penalty we ourselves owe. And going back to the topic of the hope that we have as Christians, I think our hope actually goes much deeper. I mean, yeah, eternal life, yeah, that's good stuff. Seeing loved ones who have gone before us in Christ, that's good stuff. No more pain, no more suffering, that's good stuff. But ultimately, God is our hope. God is our hope. And I just can't even begin to imagine what it's like to be in the presence of God. Right now we know him, we love him, we long for him in our hearts, and we know him from a distance. And at some point, when our time comes, we're going to see him in all of his glory. There's going to be nothing as incredible as that. We get glimpses of that in the Bible when you see the throne of God. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I guess I ask you here today, where is your hope today? Where is your hope today? How is your faith doing today? If you're struggling in these areas, I strongly encourage you to reach out to me, reach out to one of our elders, reach out to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and say, you know what, I'm really hurting right now. I'm really struggling with my faith in God right now, with something that's going on in my life. Talk about it. Don't keep it locked in. Get together with somebody and talk about it. Open the scriptures together and seek God. And I'm going to close with this. And yes, today is going to be the world's shortest sermon you've ever had. (laughs) But we just had such a phenomenal program with that pageant. Uh, Psalm 42. The Psalms are so awesome. I've talked about the Psalms countless times and I'm going to continue to my last breath. They're just so awesome. There's so many things that are talked about just about having our hope in God. But I love this one. This is just one of many. But this is Psalm 42. uh, Psalm 42, 5, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Let's pray.